Pushkin. I've interviewed many successful people over the years, and one thing I find fascinating is many of them don't consider themselves business savvy. Take the owners of Tight Knit Brewing. They turn to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards and do all of it in one place with the Chase mobile app. And that's helped these brew-loving friends turn a passion into a business. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A., member FDIC. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Hello, listeners of Brave New Planet. I'm Vas Christodoulou, host of the How To Academy podcast, a bi-weekly show from London's home of big thinking. Join us and hear in-depth from guests including Cristiana Fuigueres on fighting the climate crisis, Yuval Noah Harari on the story of the human race, Richard Dawkins on a life dedicated to science, and many more. That's the How To Academy podcast, the bi-weekly show from London's home of big thinking. You're listening to Brave New Planet, a podcast about amazing new technologies that could dramatically improve our world. Or, if we don't make wise choices, could leave us a lot worse off. Utopia or dystopia? It's up to us. On October 8, 1769, James Cook, an explorer and captain in the British Royal Navy, became the first European to set foot on the islands that are today known as New Zealand. His arrival would have dramatic consequences for the Maori people that had inhabited the land for hundreds of years. It would also radically alter New Zealand's ecology. Because when Cook disembarked, so too did some of the rats that had hitchhiked on his ship. Previously unknown to the Pacific Islands, these rodents grew in population over the centuries and wreaked havoc on the environment. We're in the middle of a rodent nami. You've seen the headlines, rats as big as cats, rats everywhere. Rats. It is a problem. Yeah, it is a problem. They poo you know, everywhere yeah, like you wouldn't yeah. believe. They gnaw through things. We've um, probably got the most rats, double the most rats we've ever had. Shocking, actually, do you see? Shocking. And it's not just unpleasantness that's the problem. The rats and other invasive mammals have been decimating New Zealand's birds. They devour tens of millions of eggs and baby birds every year, causing the extinction of one quarter of the nation's unique bird species. New Zealand has long tried to get rid of these invaders. The traditional answer has been to spread rat poison all over the islands, often by helicopters. But rat poison is indiscriminate. Native animals can also die from eating it. Sometimes humans accidentally consume it as well. And 
it hasn't solved the problem. Recently, scientists have proposed a much more targeted solution. It's called a gene drive, a genetic engineering trick that guarantees that when two animals mate, a specific gene will be inherited by 100% of their progeny. In time, any gene, even a disadvantageous gene, would spread through the population. If New Zealand were to release genetically engineered rats with a gene drive to dramatically decrease the rat's fertility, well, the rat population would shrink. In effect, evolution could be directed to vote the rats off the islands. And it's not just rats. Gene drives might be used against any invasive animal or plant that uses sexual reproduction. And they might also be used to save species. For example, by helping them survive the effects of climate change. Most importantly, gene drives might save millions of lives by eliminating or modifying the mosquito that's primarily responsible for spreading malaria throughout sub-Saharan Africa. Now, no one has yet deployed gene drives in the wild, but they've been shown to work in the laboratory. Reshaping nature. It's a heady concept. Scientists are exhilarated by the possibilities for improving the world. At the same time, they're wondering, what could possibly go wrong? Today's big question. Should we use gene drives to correct the past introduction of invasive species, protect species from the ravages of climate change, and save humans from serious infectious diseases? Or is it too risky? Evolution and ecology, after all, can be strangely unpredictable. When might the risks be justified? And when you're proposing to release things into nature, who needs to say yes? My name is Eric Lander. I'm a scientist who works on ways to improve human health. I helped lead the Human Genome Project, and today I lead the Broad Institute of MIT and Harvard. In the 21st century, powerful technologies have been appearing at a breathtaking pace related to the internet, artificial intelligence, genetic engineering, and more. They have amazing potential upsides. But we can't ignore the risks that come with them. The decisions aren't just up to scientists or politicians. Whether we like it or not, we, all of us, are the stewards of a brave new planet. This generation's choices will shape the future as never before. Coming up on this episode of Brave New Planet. We speak to scientists who played a key role in inventing gene drives. This is potentially a much more elegant way of solving ecological problems than poisons and bulldozers. We talk with people trying to balance the benefits and risks. Okay, so people are looking at using genetic engineering to alter wild species. This is really exciting. And at the same time, literally in the same breath, I was also just like, holy crap. If this isn't used properly, this could be really damaging to our planet. We hear from a scientist in Burkina Faso who wants to use gene drives to get rid of malaria. This is really my dream and my hope 
that I can come up with something that can really help not only Burkina Faso, but the entire Africa. And a journalist from Kenya who's pretty skeptical. It's very nice to think that people really care about the lives of Africans, but I think the story is a lot more complex than that. Stay tuned. Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you, who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Join hosts Ben Walter, CEO of Chase for Business, and Tanya Nebo, a lawyer and business consultant, on these storytelling journeys of trials, tribulations, and triumphs that hinged on a single event, a split-second decision, or even a stroke of luck. Whether the story is about a warehouse going up in flames or a former partner stealing a whole roster of clients, each episode will showcase the grit, determination, and resourcefulness a small business owner needed to turn a pivotal situation into a springboard for success. Listen to The Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. member, FDIC, copyright 2024. J.P. Morgan Chase & Co. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Hello, listeners of Brave New Planet. I'm Vas Christodoulou, host of the How To Academy podcast, a bi-weekly show from London's home of big thinking. Join us and hear in-depth from guests including Cristiana Fuigueres on fighting the climate crisis, Yuval Noah Harari on the story of the human race, Richard Dawkins on a life dedicated to science, and many more. That's the How To Academy podcast, the bi-weekly show from London's home of big thinking. Chapter 1. Snails the Size of Baseballs To understand the reasons why people might want to use gene drives, I talked with someone who's thought a lot about them. My name is uh, Dr. James Collins. Go by Jim. I'm a professor in the School of Life Sciences at Arizona State University. Jim is an evolutionary ecologist who co-chaired a study on gene drives for the U.S. National Academy of Sciences. For an evolutionary ecologist, he has a bit of an unusual upbringing. I grew up in New York City, uh, Queens, and always just had a love of, of plants and animals. In New York City? In New York City. Queens at the time was different than Queens today. I could go fishing. I could catch turtles and snakes and frogs, all kinds of insects, bring them home to my very tolerant parents. Jim knows a lot about how ecosystems can be disrupted by the introduction of new species, from microbes to mammals. He told me that Captain Cook was responsible for more than just introducing rats into New Zealand. Think about Hawaiian birds. 
where they're endangered by avian malaria. And that's as a result of a mosquito being introduced by Captain Cook. Then the colonists brought chickens and they brought avian malaria. The mosquitoes begin to feed on the chickens, acquire the malaria, and then begin to feed on native birds, transmit the malaria to native birds, and they are being diminished in terms of population sizes and even species. In fact, Hawaii has become the bird extinction capital of the world. Since humans arrived, 95 of 142 bird species found nowhere else in the world have become extinct in Hawaii. Even small-scale introduction of a new species can lead to massive problems. In 1966, a young boy who was vacationing in Hawaii decided to take a few of the giant land snails that live there back to his home in Miami to keep them as pets in the family garden. The snails, which can grow larger than the size of baseballs, reproduced quickly. They soon began to cause economic damage to local farms, and they also carried dangerous parasites. Slithering along at, quite literally, a snail's pace, they certainly don't look menacing. But for the Florida Department of Agriculture, this is a horror movie. The problem with these things, they love just about anything that grows in Florida. The eradication effort, which used poisons, took 10 years and cost over a million dollars. But despite all the work, the snail population eventually bounced back. In 2014, the Florida Department of Agriculture went door-to-door searching for the snails. They found 150,000, with two properties alone harboring 700 of the critters. With other invasive species, the measures have been even more dramatic. In the 1950s, Australia tried to exterminate an escalating population of European rabbits that had been introduced a century earlier by an English settler. Their solution was to release rabbits carrying a deadly myxoma virus. It killed millions of rabbits across Australia. But it didn't solve the problem. There are hundreds of invasive species that people would like to be rid of. Zebra mussels in the Great Lakes, silver carp in the Missouri River, kudzu weed in Georgia, Burmese pythons in the Everglades. But the species that cause the most harm to humans aren't recent invaders. They're indigenous mosquitoes that spread malaria in Africa. My name is Diane Wirth. I'm on the faculty at the Harvard Chan School of Public Health. I work on malaria. Diane is also a colleague of mine at the Broad Institute, and she's studied malaria for over 35 years. Malaria starts as a fever and chills. It it has nondescript symptoms in the early stages. But then as the disease progresses, uh, people can go into a coma. They get very sick. And it spreads by mosquitoes. That's right. Uh, The disease is transmitted by the Anopheline mosquito. Uh, in Africa, that's Anopheles gambia, um, a mosquito that's very efficient at transmitting malaria. The world has tried to eradicate malaria once before in the middle of the last century when they had DDT and chloroquine, uh, DDT to kill mosquitoes and chloroquine to treat infected people. 
And that effort uh, did lead to some successes. Malaria was eliminated from Italy, from most of southern Europe, from the United States uh, by uh, a combination of those techniques and environmental activities, including putting oil on the top of water. So it wouldn't be environmentally allowed now, but was done in the Tennessee Valley here in the United States uh, in the 1950s. And that effort failed um, in most of the world. And in fact, that effort really never included sub-Saharan Africa because the experts at the time concluded that in sub-Saharan Africa, transmission was so intense that no effort could bring it under control. How are we doing in the elimination of malaria today? I think what's happened in the last decade is, is two things. One, there's been an overall reduction in the number of cases of malaria through increased distribution of bed nets, better diagnostics, better use of uh, treatment drugs. We've dropped uh, cases by 40% worldwide and deaths by about 50% worldwide. The other part of the story is really sub-Saharan Africa where progress has slowed and in many cases reversed. For example, Nigeria has 25% of all of the malaria in the world, and 10 countries make up 70% of the burden of malaria worldwide, all of these countries in Africa. Progress using our standard tools has stalled in those countries. We're going to need innovation in order to actually continue the downward trend and, in fact, in some cases, reverse what appears to be a rebound in the number of cases. The mosquitoes are rebounding in part because they've evolved resistance to overcome traditional methods of control. The major insecticide that we use to kill mosquitoes, there's resistance in almost all mosquito populations. And so we anticipate that the need to have new insecticides is urgent, and without that, we're unlikely to reach eradication goals, particularly in sub-Saharan Africa. So scientists are constantly imagining new solutions to save ecosystems and to save human lives. Could gene drives be the answer? Chapter 2 Selfish genes. Instead of deploying poisons and viruses, what if we could just genetically reprogram pests to slow or even stop their reproduction? The strategy may sound simple, but it has a gaping hole. The logic of natural selection means that disadvantageous genes, ones that cause an organism to produce fewer offspring, should die out. Ah, but there's a loophole. In theory, a gene could spread in a population, even if it hurts an organism's reproduction, if it could find a way to ensure that it gets inherited by most of the offspring. Could nature actually do that? Nature does such things often. Again, evolutionary ecologist Jim Collins. A well-known example is a driving Y chromosome in some species of mice, which converts a population into all males. And of course, that population then would go extinct. It's one of those very interesting quirks of evolution in which you wind up with 
populations of all males basically blinking out of existence. And so you get one group can be converted into males that goes extinct, but there are other groups that still have males and females in them, and they'll, they'll continue on. When we think of how genes are passed on, we usually think about the laws of Mendelian inheritance, first recognized by Gregor Mendel, a friar and scientist who studied pea plants in the mid-1800s. Mendel figured out that in sexually reproducing species, each individual has two copies of each gene, one from their mother, one from their father. They pass on one of those two copies to each child, with the two copies each having a 50-50 chance of being passed on. For example, imagine a gene that determines the sex of an offspring. If you have a sexually reproducing species that has males and females in it, a baby would be, be predicted to be a male 50% of the time, female 50% of the time. But what if a gene naturally evolved that could cheat, could greedily stack the deck so that it gets inherited 60%, 80%, or even 100% of the time? Biologists refer to such selfish behavior as a gene drive. What a gene drive could do is change that ratio as far as any particular genetic trait is concerned. So what was the first time anybody noticed the existence of a natural gene drive? They were described either the very late 1800s, very early 1900s. So it's been known for a long time. Over the 20th century, scientists discovered a vast array of gene drives in nature. But it was only in the beginning of this century that they began to seriously think about how they might harness the power of gene drives. Austin Burt was the one who laid out in principle the idea that if there were a way to control this natural process, then indeed you would have in your hands something that could control the gene frequency in populations. My name is Austin Burt, and I'm a professor of evolutionary genetics here at Imperial College London. Austin's an expert in selfish genes, genes that cheat Mendelian inheritance. Things that show gene drive or similar sorts of behavior and all the other sorts of weird and wonderful genes out there are able to spread through populations, not because they increase the survival or reproduction of the organism, but because they're distorting transmission to their own advantage. He became very interested in using gene drives for the benefit of public health. So, for example, in Aedes mosquitoes, which is uh, the vector for a yellow fever and dengue, there is a naturally occurring selfish element. On the Y chromosome, the male determining part of the genome, that gets into 95% or so of the progeny. And so it has the potential then to spread through a population, and as it does so, distort the sex ratio of the population to be more and more male-biased. That's worth reiterating. A naturally occurring gene drive in mosquitoes turned 95% of the male. And that caught people's attention because male mosquitoes don't bite people, they don't transmit the disease. And so the idea was that you might be able to use that sort of element to control the diseases spread by those mosquitoes. Diseases like malaria. Unfortunately, gene drives in animals tend to use specialized tricks, many of which still aren't fully understood. The best gene drive to engineer would be based on simple principles, and you'd most likely find them in simple organisms. 
as luck would have it, that's what Austin studied. Uh, my first grant was to study the selfish genetic elements of yeasts. The best-known gene drive in yeast exploits the fact that chromosomes come in pairs. So here's the trick. The gene drive occurs at a specific spot on a specific chromosome, and it encodes the instructions for an enzyme called a homing endonuclease. The sole purpose of that enzyme is to make a cut at the exact same spot on any other copy of the chromosome that doesn't already have the gene drive. When a cell detects that cut, it fills it in with the genetic information from the matching spot on the uncut chromosome. And presto changeo, the cell inserts a copy of the gene drive into that spot on the chromosome. When I was reading about this, I thought, well, okay, so if that was actually feasible, then we could instead use use that same sort of approach to change them to recognize mosquito sequences and then using that to knock out a gene that's essential for the survival or reproduction of the mosquito and so suppress the population that way. In 2003, Austin published a paper in the Proceedings of the Royal Society describing this brilliant idea. In principle, gene drives could be used to suppress a population, say, decreasing the fertility of mosquitoes, or to alter a population, say, adding a gene that would prevent the malaria parasite from growing in the mosquito. But there was one hitch. The homing endonuclease in yeast recognizes only one specific DNA sequence. To engineer new gene drives, you'd need to be able to reprogram them to recognize different sequences. It was difficult to get the enzymes to be recognize new sequences, to recognize mosquito sequences as opposed to yeast sequences. It would take another 10 years before the solution emerged. It turned out to involve another system that accomplished the same thing in a very different way. The system was called CRISPR. Chapter 3. A Shining, Marvelous Future CRISPR is a kind of immune system that bacteria use to protect themselves against viruses. CRISPR uses an enzyme to cut the virus's DNA. But what's amazing is that the enzyme doesn't have a fixed target. It's programmable. The bacteria create instructions based on past viral infections. The CRISPR enzyme uses these instructions to search for a matching DNA sequence and then cuts it. It took 20 years and dozens of scientists around the world to understand exactly how CRISPR works. But once they did, scientists figured out how to use its ability to target DNA sequences to create a technology to edit the genetic code inside living cells, from yeast to humans. Genome editing has made a huge splash, including the award of a Nobel Prize last month to two scientists for their work on CRISPR. CRISPR has so many potential applications. Medical scientists realized that it held the prospect of fixing mutations in patients with severe diseases. And Austin Burt realized that this new technology could turn his idea of gene drives from dream 
into practical reality. Austin had been working for the last decade trying to engineer existing gene drives from organisms like yeast. And that was just a hideously complicated and difficult endeavor that wasn't getting all that far. CRISPR was the perfect tool for enabling gene drive. This is biologist Kevin Esfeld, who was the first person to propose a specific design for a CRISPR-based gene drive. I'm an assistant professor at the MIT Media Lab, where I direct the Sculpting Evolution Group. And our job is to cultivate wisdom through ecological and evolutionary engineering. Kevin's interest in sculpting evolution started early, when he read Michael Crichton's 1990 novel, Jurassic Park. The mere notion that we might be able to resurrect dinosaurs through genetic engineering was just mind-boggling. And even more so, there's this notion that the park was a synthetic ecosystem built to host creatures that lived nowhere else in the world. That's an incredible idea that we can potentially make our own ecosystems. How old were you when you read Jurassic Park? Oh, God, probably eight or nine. At a very young age, you might say I knew what I wanted to do with my life. I wanted to understand how genetics made organisms and ecosystems the way they are. And I was interested in tinkering with them in order to better understand the answer to that question. Kevin remembers the moment when it dawned on him that CRISPR would make it practical to engineer gene drives. He immediately read all of Austin's papers. The first day was pure elation, thinking about all the amazing things you could do. You were thinking about applications already. One is human health. Things like malaria, schistosomiasis, dengue, it's spread by mosquito, Lyme disease, tick-borne illnesses, mosquito-borne illnesses, parasites, you name it. Number two is environmental preservation. And then there's agriculture, because instead of spraying nasty poisons on our crops in order to get rid of the pests that eat them, how about we program the pests to dislike the taste? This is potentially a much more elegant way of solving ecological problems than poisons and bulldozers. In short, suppression gene drives aimed at suppressing the population of a dangerous or invasive species could provide a general approach to conquer terrible parasites and restore natural environments. To say that Kevin was excited would be an understatement. The possibilities of a shining, marvelous future were just exploding all around me like fireworks. Kevin published his proposal about how to build a CRISPR-based gene drive in 2014. Within a year, scientific papers began reporting functioning gene drives, first in yeast, then fruit flies, and then in mosquitoes. Beyond Kevin's favorite applications, some people are thinking about gene drives as a way to help nature adapt rapidly to some of the devastating effects of climate change. Uh, my name is Natalie Kofler. I'm a molecular biologist, and I recently founded an initiative called Editing Nature, which tries to integrate diverse worldviews and perspectives to steer responsible development of genetic technologies for the environment. Natalie first became interested in gene drives because she was frustrated with the methods that were being used to get rid of specific invasive species. In Canada, where Natalie's from, ash trees were disappearing at a frightening pace because they were being destroyed by invasive beetles, originally from Asia. Ecologists had started considering ways to get rid of these beetles, and they pitched the idea of importing Russian wasps to prey 
on the Asian Beatles. I was like, are you kidding me? This doesn't make any sense. And so, and so I just started thinking that there must be biotech options. That very year, Kevin Esvelt and his group had published um, reports on using CRISPR-based gene drives to change wild species. And I, that was sort of the aha moment where I thought, okay, so people are looking at using genetic engineering to alter wild species. This is really exciting because it could provide a solution for these really huge challenges that we're facing. Among those challenges, Natalie points to what's happening to coral reefs. So we're seeing a huge decline in coral reef health right now, in large part because ocean temperatures are rising, oceans are becoming more um, acidic, and that's causing a lot of stress to the coral. It's happening really quickly and pretty extensively. Why do coral reefs matter? I always think of them as almost like the forests of the sea. So they create huge amount of habitat for many marine fish. Many people's livelihoods depend on the fish that depend on coral reef. Um, and so there's been, you know, estimates in the trillions and trillions of dollars that would be lost if the coral were to continue to decline at the rates that they do. So losing all the coral would be like losing all the forests. In a way. I, that's what somehow I think about it. In contrast to suppression gene drives, Natalie thinks that alteration gene drives, ones that would spread beneficial genes throughout a population, could make some corals more resilient to climate change. And there is research starting to come out showing that certain um, mutations and certain genes can be protective against things like acidification or, or high temperatures or allow the coral to adapt better. And so the idea would be that you could use CRISPR gene editing to rewrite the genome of a coral to be able to express these resiliency-inducing genes. If you were to introduce a gene drive as well, then that would also allow you to release into the wild, into the ocean, and allow that to spread. Chapter 4. Anopheles Gambiae. Of all the possible uses of gene drives, none is more compelling than Austin Burt's original idea of controlling the spread of malaria. According to the World Health Organization, more than 400,000 people die from malaria each year. That's close to one death every minute. Most are children under five. Austin Bird ended up creating Target Malaria, a not-for-profit research collaboration with the mission of developing and sharing genetic technologies to help stop the spread of malaria in sub-Saharan Africa. Target Malaria is targeting several mosquito species, including Anopheles gambiae, the mosquito responsible for most malaria cases in sub-Saharan Africa, which malaria expert Diane Worth described earlier. Among many possible designs, a simple approach would be to create a suppression gene drive that causes mosquitoes to produce mostly male offspring. The strategy is actually a twofer. First, as Austin Burt noted earlier, male mosquitoes don't bite people, so they can't transmit malaria. Second, the lopsided sex ratio should cause the population to dramatically crash and perhaps be eliminated in some areas. Target Malaria is headquartered in the UK, where Austin works, but it has research teams in many places, including Mali, Uganda, and Burkina Faso. I spoke via Skype with one of Target Malaria's lead researchers in Burkina Faso. My name is Abdoulaye Diabate. I'm a medical entomologist. Dr. Abdoulaye Diabate 
was born and raised in a rural area of southwest Burkina Faso, and he is intimately familiar with the disease. Malaria is the leading cause of death in Burkina Faso. There is absolutely no doubt about that. This is really a very big issue for us. As uh, myself, as a kid, experienced several episodes of malaria. All my brothers and sisters, thematically, every single one got malaria. If you don't have a real treatment right away, it can quickly lead to death. And even remember myself, when I was still a kid, long time ago, I have suffered, you know, from malaria. And I could really see from the eyes of my parents that they were really, very really scared because they knew that at any time they could lose me. Fortunately, I made it through. But as a parent today, I have the same experience, you know, with my kids. Abdullaye has dedicated his life to malaria prevention. He did his Ph.D. in France and postdoctoral research at the U.S. National Institutes of Health before returning to Burkina Faso. I felt really that I came to the U.S., you know, to learn, and I have to come back home, you know, to give back to my community. And as a scientist, this is really my dream and my hope that I can come up with something that can really help not only Burkina Faso, but the entire Africa to make sure that we can get rid once for all of malaria. When he first returned home, the most promising method of malaria eradication was to target mosquitoes by using insecticide-treated nets. And that tool was pretty successful, at least initially. We were really, very excited, you know, when we saw the data because we had really fantastic data showing that it has a clear impact on malaria transmission in Burkina Faso. But soon researchers started to see problems with the method. We started, you know, to see insecticide resistance, you know, coming in. And we reached a point where mosquitoes are no longer susceptible. As he began desperately looking for new tools, he came across the gene drive proposal from Austin Burt and Target Malaria and began working with the team. My hope really is that we are able, you know, to come up with some very good intervention tool that can help and then have a really, very good impact on malaria burden in Africa. Target malaria is still five to ten years away from testing an actual gene drive in the field. But the excitement is palpable. Controlling malaria in Africa, saving 400,000 lives a year, would be a big, big deal. Now, gene drives clearly work in the lab. So what are people waiting for? Why aren't we just releasing gene drives against mosquitoes? And lots of other targets as well. What? could possibly go wrong. Chapter 5. What Could Possibly Go Wrong? In thinking about what could go wrong, many scientists use terms like unintended consequences. Molecular biologist Natalie Kofler, well, she puts it differently. Okay, so people are looking at using genetic engineering to alter wild species. This is really exciting, huge challenges that we're facing. And at the same time, literally in the same breath, I was also just like, holy crap. If this isn't used properly, this could be really damaging to our planet. To prevent that, Natalie founded an organization called the Editing Nature Initiative. For his part, Kevin Esfeld came to a similar realization, although it took him just a little bit longer. Soon after his day of euphoria, his vision of a shining, marvelous future with fireworks exploding, Kevin says he fell into utter despair. 
total paranoia of dark visions of horrible, horrific misuse and weaponization. What worries Kevin, Natalie, and others is that gene drives actually might be so easy to make and work so well that things might get out of hand. Which means if a CRISPR-based gene drive system will spread in the wild, probably to most populations of that species that are connected by any kind of gene flow, then that means that individual people could potentially single-handedly edit entire species. Suppose you release a gene drive into the rat population of a remote Pacific island. How can you be sure that it won't actually get off the island? And the rodents got there in the first place, right? It's, we should safely assume that they can also get off. If one of those rodents stows away on a ship, like the ones that stowed away on Captain Cook's ship, it's possible that the gene drive could eventually spread throughout the entire species of black rats around the world. Rats are invasive species in some places, but they're an important part of the ecosystem elsewhere. So what happens if you unintentionally alter, suppress, or in the worst case, wipe out a species? I asked evolutionary ecologist Jim Collins, who co-chaired the U.S. National Academy of Sciences study published in 2016. You do not want to be just reaching into ecosystems and arbitrarily removing species. Humanity has done lots of that, and there have been these unintended consequences that are not good. Can you give us a couple examples of, of that? There are any number of instances in which we've, we've removed top predators, for example, in ocean systems, in which the top predators have been fished out. And then you can wind up with the ecosystem that is uh, greatly diminished. It's largely algae and jellyfishes by the time you've taken off the top predators in the system. What about unintentionally wiping out the mosquito species that carry malaria? Could that disrupt an ecosystem? Well, there are plenty of things that eat mosquitoes. And so hypothetically, yes, there could be effects. Do we know exactly what they are yet? No. Austin Bird, who founded Target Malaria, has thought a lot about the effects of suppressing mosquito populations. He's asked, are mosquitoes a keystone species on which other organisms depend? According to Austin, experts think not. Predators that eat mosquitoes appear to eat any flying insects. He's also asked, if mosquitoes disappeared from a region, would an insect transmitting an even worse disease take its place? Well, it's hard to imagine because mosquitoes and malaria are amongst humanity's worst scourges. Still, Austin says, we should take nothing for granted. And mosquitoes are a relatively easy case. You'd have to answer the same questions for every possible use of gene drives. But as Jim Collins's National Academy report notes, there's another problem. Beyond unintended consequences, there's the disturbing possibility that someone might deliberately use gene drives to cause harm. It could be used maliciously. A bad actor could decide to try to develop a gene drive system that might target some part of the food supply in a country. The individual could decide to, to introduce traits, undesirable traits in other, other kinds of organisms and cause lots of mischief. What would be the most likely targets for it? Organisms that reproduce sexually 
that have a relatively short generation time, you'd want this thing to turn over pretty quickly. So you're probably not going to use a gene drive system for for longer-lived animals, larger vertebrates, let's say, cattle. But for smaller organisms that turn over pretty quickly, maybe poultry, you might be able to think about using something like a gene drive system. In short, Jim says, a bad actor might try to use gene drives as a bioweapon to devastate agriculture in a country. Chapter 6, Daisy Chains. As Kevin Esfeld thought more, he stumbled across a big problem with his initial design for gene drives. It would be too risky even to run field trials to test the technology. Why? Because if even a single organism escaped from the test area, well, the gene drive might invade the entire species. The problem with the full-power version is it has everything it needs to copy itself forever in every generation. So Kevin got to work designing gene drives that couldn't spread forever. Self-exhausting gene drives. He designed something he named a daisy drive. Every link in this daisy chain is the equivalent of, like, one gallon of genetic fuel. And you burn genetic fuel over generations, and when you run out, it stops. Daisy drives involve a chain of genetic elements, say A, B, C, D, E, each inserted into a different chromosome. A copies B to make sure it's inherited by all the offspring. B copies C, C copies D, and so on. But nothing's driving A. It's inherited by only half the offspring. So when A is lost, there's nothing copying B. So it's eventually lost, and so on. When you introduce a daisy chain into a large population, it should eventually peter out. And Kevin has more tricks up his sleeve. He's designed a gene drive that's engineered not to spread beyond the geographical area in which you released it. He calls it a threshold drive. It mimics one of the ways that reproductive barriers arise in the wild. By using genetic rearrangements, to make interbreeding less efficient. Kevin thinks these tricks will make it possible to do much safer field trials. But still, what if a drive spreads despite these safety features? Well, Kevin says, you can always create a new gene drive to spread and overwrite the first one. He calls it a restoration drive. Now, a lot of people say, wait a minute, you can't rely on the same technology that just went wrong. But hold on a second. If the problem is what we did to the species, then using another method that successfully spread a change to the whole species to successfully spread another change to the whole species is perfectly valid engineering. Even as Kevin works to devise solutions, daisy drives, threshold drives, restoration drives, he knows he can't imagine everything. I still assume that evolution is cleverer than we are going to have some trick up its sleeve. This is like you're fighting the tide, or you're fighting a blind idiot alien god, to use my preferred conception of what evolution really is. It's like the story that inspired Kevin to go into biotechnology, Jurassic Park. In the classic 1993 film, Dr. Ian Malcolm 
played by Jeff Goldblum, is a mathematician who specializes in chaos theory. Early in the film, he presciently calls out the park designers for the hubris in thinking they can control the dinosaur population. How do you know they're all female? We control their chromosomes. It's really not that difficult. John, the kind of control you're attempting is, uh, it's not possible. Listen, if there's one thing the history of evolution has taught us, it's that life will not be contained. Life breaks free, it expands to new territories, and it crashes through barriers painfully, maybe even dangerously, but, uh, well, there it is. You're implying that a group composed entirely of female animals will breed? No, I'm, I'm simply saying that life, uh, finds a way. Life finds a way. Yet Kevin knows if we want the potential benefits that gene drives offer, we have to work hard to be sure that life doesn't find a way. What I'm worried about is the loss of public trust when scientists accidentally engineer a whole species. Whatever they do can be undone, except for the fact that it would become very well known through the media that scientists accidentally turned a species into GMOs. So that's why you're very concerned to get this right. You don't think that this really will go wrong. And you do have this ultimate safety switch, which is send another gene drive to go after the first gene drive. But if we have to do that, we've already lost public trust in the technology. So we'd better never have to do that. Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Join hosts Ben Walter, CEO of Chase for Business, and Tanya Nebo, a lawyer and business consultant, on these storytelling journeys of trials, tribulations, and triumphs that hinged on a single event, a split-second decision, or even a stroke of luck. Whether the story is about a warehouse going up in flames or a former partner stealing a whole roster of clients, each episode will showcase the grit, determination, and resourcefulness a small business owner needed to turn a pivotal situation into a springboard for success. Listen to The Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. member, FDIC, copyright 2024. J.P. Morgan Chase & Co. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Hello, listeners of Brave New Planet. I'm Vas Christodoulou, host of the How To Academy podcast, a bi-weekly show from London's home of big thinking. Join us and hear in-depth from guests including Cristiana Fuigueres on fighting the climate crisis, Yuval Noah Harari on the story of the human race, Richard Dawkins on a life dedicated to science, and many more. That's the How To Academy podcast, the bi-weekly show from London's home of big thinking.
Chapter 7, Skeptics While everyone is in favor of eradicating malaria, which kills 400,000 people a year, some people are pretty skeptical about using gene drives to do it. I personally would not be in favor of gene drives. This is Zara Molu. I'm a journalist and documentary filmmaker from Kenya, and I'm currently based in Montreal. Zara has covered a wide range of topics that affect Africa, including an investigative portrait of a multinational gold mine in Tanzania. Recently, she began collaborating with an organization called the Etcetera Group. It's a small organization that works with civil society um, across different parts of the world. And they, they do work on the impact of new technologies on biodiversity and human rights and agriculture. And so I came to learn about gene drives uh, through etc. Group, through collaborating with them. In 2018, Zara made a short film and wrote an article casting doubt on Target Malaria's efforts in Burkina Faso. For starters, she challenges the motives of people working on gene drives. The question to ask is, are gene drives really about public health and conservation? Or are there other interests and other, you know, other ways that agribusiness companies can make profit from gene drives? Why do we really need gene drives? What are they really for? And who is going to benefit ultimately from the development of this technology? It's, it's very nice to think that people really care about the lives of Africans, but I think the story is a lot more complex than that. Zara also argues that Africa doesn't really need gene drives to conquer malaria. I come from a country where people contract malaria regularly. People die in my country from malaria. We do need to fight malaria, and it's a terrible disease. No one's going to disagree with that. Uh, however, it's also important to know that Paraguay eliminated malaria recently. Sri Lanka eliminated malaria. Algeria and Argentina have just been declared malaria-free. And so there are ways in which countries have successfully eradicated malaria without having to employ very risky technologies like gene drives. I asked malaria expert Diane Worth whether she thought malaria eradication in those countries provided a useful model for sub-Saharan Africa. She was skeptical. Algeria, it's a desert. Mosquitoes need water to breed. Paraguay, very small number of cases, uh, probably eliminated years ago, but finally certified. Argentina, same story, relatively little malaria ever. Sri Lanka is an island. They don't have to deal with importation from surrounding countries. They have a very strong healthcare system, so they're able to identify early every case of malaria. And they have a mosquito vector that isn't very robust. Diane argued that malaria in sub-Saharan Africa represents a very different challenge. There are different mosquitoes, there's different ecology, there's different burden of disease in the population. In many places in sub-Saharan Africa, children have malaria for half the year and serve as reservoirs for transmission. The mosquito in Africa is a mosquito that only bites humans. That means that's the most effective transmitter in most of Africa, and so therefore detecting early, preventing, and getting treatment for the disease represents a challenge. Whatever you think about the need for gene drives, Zara's key issue is very important. It's in the title of her film, A Question of Consent. 
Before gene drives get released into the wild, who needs to say yes? Chapter 8. Sharm El Sheikh to Nantucket. What to do about gene drives is a question that's been hotly debated by the governing body for the Convention on Biological Diversity, an international agreement among 196 countries on preserving, sustaining, and sharing the benefits of biodiversity. In December 2018, the group met in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt. Natalie Kofler, the founder of Editing Nature, traveled to Egypt to deliver a talk at the meeting. Many representatives from Tiger Malaria were present, um, and then many representatives from several environmental groups, and those include environmental justice advocacy, um, sort of technological white watchdogs, groups like Etc. Group. A group of the NGOs at the meeting, including the Etc. Group, called for a total moratorium on gene drives, not just on deploying them, but even studying them in the laboratory. They are calling for a moratorium on research, so basically for all research to halt, which I believe is just somewhat ridiculous. I don't think there's a way you just stop people trying to understand more. And if the point is that this could be something that could be of great benefit, you would want to be able to study it more and make sure you can understand what those benefits or risks could be. Stopping research, to me, seems irresponsible. The governing body eventually rejected the call for a moratorium. Nonetheless, Zara Molu saw the meeting as a partial victory, pointing to the closing statement by the governing body, which, she said, requires organizations seeking to release gene drive organisms to obtain the, quote, free, prior, and informed consent of potentially affected communities. So it has to be free, prior, and informed consent before these releases go ahead. So who exactly do you ask for consent? Elected officials? Anyone who might potentially be affected? How do you even know everyone who might be affected? Well, Kevin Esfeld has been wrestling with these issues in a project he's working on to fight Lyme disease in New England. Lyme disease is awful. Lyme disease is disgusting. I don't like ticks. So I figured, well, what if we decide to prevent Lyme disease? Caused by a bacteria, Lyme disease can lead to serious long-term symptoms, including pain, severe headaches, and numbness. Humans get Lyme disease from being bitten by infected ticks. And how do the ticks pick up the bacteria? Most ticks get infected when they bite a white-footed mouse. So what if the white-footed mice were immune? Kevin's big idea was to take the mice that had developed antibodies against Lyme disease read out the genetic instructions that encode those antibodies, and use a gene drive to spread those instructions throughout the entire white-footed mouse population so that the mice get born immune. For a number of reasons, Kevin decided the best place to test the idea would be Nantucket and Martha's Vineyard, former whaling communities turned summer resorts in Massachusetts. First, they have high rates of Lyme disease. About half the people who grow up there have had acute episodes. Second, they're islands, so a gene drive wouldn't spread as easily. And third, they had in place a mechanism for consent. New England has this tradition of town hall democracy in which communities actually get together and discuss important problems. So Kevin reached out to the boards of health on Nantucket and Martha's Vineyard. And Nantucket got back to us first and said, 
yeah, come to our meeting. So we took the ferry and I explained how we might be able to do this. But if we were going to do it, the community would need to tell us what to do. Are they interested enough for us to bother? And if so, which option would they prefer? What'd they say? This sounds really interesting. We think you should begin research. How many more meetings have you had after that first meeting? Oh, oh, well over a dozen meetings on both islands. And has this changed the way you think about the experiment? It has. So people who live there know much more about the environment than I do, or in collectively more than any single scientist does. They could notice something that we haven't. And so if you want to make this kind of project as safe as possible, you invite everyone to poke holes in your pet theory. Kevin isn't actually proposing to start by releasing gene drives on the whole of Nantucket or Martha's Vineyard. Instead, he's hoping to try it on some very little islands nearby. Fortunately, there are several owners of islands who have volunteered their islands for this project because they're tired of going out there over the summer and getting bitten by ticks and having to take doxycycline. These would be little islands, uninhabited except for occasionally a few summer residents, all of whom have bought in. So what's your scenario for releasing gene drive mice on a little island? We're considering the possibility of using a form of threshold drive. That might be the very first field trial. Target best case scenario would be three years if it turns out the standard methods in lab mice transfer pretty readily. According to a recent update from Kevin, most islanders are comfortable with the idea of releasing genetically engineered mice provided that all the DNA components come from within the mouse species. Many, though, are bothered by the idea of mixing DNA from different species, which would, of course, rule out a CRISPR-based gene drive, at least to start. Chapter 9. Consent or Consensus? So what to do about fighting malaria in West Africa? The problem is far more urgent than Lyme disease, which is almost never fatal. And the issues around consent are far more complicated. Again, Zara Molu is highly critical of target malaria's process, which she views as secretive. So I guess a question perhaps for them is what constitutes consent to them? What have they done to ensure that the process of free, prior, and informed consent is in place in Burkina Faso following the decision at the Convention on Biological Diversity? When I spoke to people in Burkina Faso, they certainly were not informed. People need to be informed, not just at the village level where these releases are going to take place, but also in the cities. Civil society needs to be informed. I would say the whole country and even the whole region needs to be informed because this is a very risky technology whose consequences are not known. In Zara's film, she interviews about a dozen people in the regional capital where Target Malaria's lab is located, and in small communities where Target Malaria someday hopes to test gene drives. The people interviewed mostly say they haven't been told about the research. Some say they distrust GMOs, citing Burkina Faso's experiences with genetically modified cotton. And some worry that gene drives will have side effects. According to one woman interviewed, quote, it will kill us. Sarah says Target Malaria hasn't accepted the concept of informed consent. Target Malaria talks about stakeholder engagement. They talk about community engagement, but they don't talk about consent. 
She also says target malaria shouldn't be the only group providing information about gene drives because they're advocates for the new technology. Information needs to be out there. Information that's not just from target malaria, but also independent information from researchers, from scientists. I asked Abdullaye Diabate, the Burkina Faso native and target malaria scientist, about his organization's efforts. It's extremely important that you have to work in full transparency, you know, with the different community at whatever level. And when it's a community, it's not just about the villages where you're doing the work. It's, you know, the religious authority, with the media, the also even with the civil society. So you have a really to make sure that you have worked clearly with all these people. Abdullaye says that he and his colleagues meet regularly with local residents, as well as citizens in other parts of the country. To help people understand gene drives, they've developed a lexicon to translate the scientific words into the local languages. They've also invited residents to visit the laboratory to see how they feed the mosquitoes and explain their experiments. And, he says, they've put in place a grievance mechanism. If there is anything that these people really in the, in the villages are not happy about or that are, they have any concerns, and uh, we come and we sit, uh, sit down with them and then we can talk. And, and this is how really you build trust, you know, with the villages. Target Malaria has also worked with the Burkina Faso government, getting permission from the National Biosafety Agency for small-scale releases of non-gene-drive mosquitoes, and with the African Union's scientific arm, which issued a favorable report about the potential for gene drives. Still, Abdullaye acknowledges, there will never be unanimity about gene drives. Uh, it's really extremely difficult for the new technology to have everybody having, you know, the same opinion. That being said, it's clear that Burkina is really quite vast. So we're almost about, you know, 17 to 18 million people. So you cannot reach out to anyone, everybody. So we have done what we could do face-to-face with people. And beyond that now, we have been working also with the media, either through the TV or through also the written paper, so to make sure that the information really out there that people can, you know, get the right information. And then we open our door for anyone who really have concern about anything. And so far, I can say that we have reached out to a lot of people. Still, uh, we still have a lot of work to do. Given Target Malaria's engagement activities, I asked Austin Bird about Zara Molu's criticism that the group doesn't talk about getting, quote, informed consent. Austin argued that informed consent is the right concept when you're performing a medical procedure on an individual patient. But, he says, public health interventions are decided by communities and governments. The practice is to work at the community level, to seek community acceptance or approval. In fact, it turns out the statement by the governing body of the Convention on Biological Diversity also endorsed this approach. It called on parties to seek either free prior and informed consent or approval and involvement of local communities. In other words, the international statement is open to both approaches. I asked Natalie Kofler what she thought about Target Malaria's efforts to inform the public. They also run a really significant public engagement initiative in the countries that they're looking to release these mosquitoes in eventually. And that would be Burkina Faso, Mali, and Uganda are sort of the three countries they're targeting. 
Target Malaria also has significant outreach with uh, government officials um, in within the African Union. I have to say I'm in I'm impressed by the the amount of foresight they're using and the transparency they are they are using. Um, they're going above and beyond what what most technologists have ever done in in the past. While Natalie applauded Target Malaria's efforts, she agreed with Zara Molu on one important point, namely that communities can't just rely on target malaria to provide information or to lead the discussions. It's concerning to me when a large, well-funded organization is able to sort of unilaterally steer the technology's progress. So there needs to be a third-party neutral body that can help to mediate this sort of discussions and deliberation and information that would be needed to even come to any sort of decision. Who is the independent third party who's not either a declared advocate trying to release the gene drive or the declared NGO opponent? I mean, quite frankly, that's the sort of organization that I'm in the process of trying to create. These are really complicated issues, and they really deserve time and reflection and engagement of of really diverse voices. Natalie was the lead author of an unusual policy article entitled Editing Nature, Local Roots of Global Governance, published in November 2018 in Science, the leading American scientific journal. The article calls for the creation of a kind of honest broker organization that can convene parties ranging from local communities to technologists, NGOs, and governments to deliberate about proposed uses of gene drives. We call for the need to have really meaningful locally-based engagement around these technologies, but then we also call for the need for some sort of global coordinating body. The article's a great model of scientists grappling with how society might come together to make decisions about whether and when to deploy a new technology. It has 16 co-authors, including Jim Collins, who led the National Academy study, and Kevin Esfeld. I asked Jim Collins how something like a global coordinating body might work. For example, who would choose the representatives of the local communities? I would be in favor of whatever governance structure the local community uses to pick its leadership or to pick representatives. And yet you're an optimist that this can be done? I am an optimist that that it can be done. And furthermore, I think that we want to do it now. You want to do it now. You want to work through these problems now so that you're thinking you've got the time. The technology has not been perfected, so we have a little bit of breathing room. So this is the time to develop these sorts of uh, governance structures. But scientists realize that achieving consensus won't be easy. The more people you have at the table, the harder it is to find consensus sometimes. It's a paradox I think about a lot because I'm like full on. I want as many diverse voices at the table as we can have. I want historically marginalized voices at the table. I even want people speaking for nature at the table. And this is going to make things complicated. And so maybe we even have to think about, again, differently. This isn't necessarily a yes or no. This is more of sort of an informing process that can help steer, at least steer the technology in a way that's reflective of a broader group of people. Inventing wise ways to manage gene drives may ultimately take as much creativity as it took to invent gene drives in the first place. And it may take some time. In that regard, I want to note that at the Broad Institute, the research institute I direct, we ourselves have had to grapple with what to do about gene drives. 
I mentioned earlier that many scientists had contributed to the development of CRISPR, the key technology underlying modern gene drives. These scientists include some of my colleagues at the Broad, and as a result, the Institute is a co-owner of some of the foundational patents on CRISPR. We've granted commercial licenses for the use of CRISPR for many purposes. But the question arose, should we let companies license our patents on CRISPR for use in gene drives? After a lot of discussion, we decided not to do so. At least not yet. We thought it would be better to wait before granting licenses to help buy time for society to decide whether and how to use the technology. Still, the clock is ticking. As I was finishing up this episode, I called Austin Burt to confirm my recollection that target malaria was on target to release gene-drive mosquitoes in about five years. He corrected me. He said target malaria expected to be ready in five years to submit an application asking for permission. What would happen next, he said? Well, that would be up to society. Conclusion. Choose your planet. So there you have it. Gene drives. They could help us restore ecosystems disrupted by invasive species or help critical native species withstand climate change. Most importantly, they might save millions of lives by suppressing the mosquitoes that spread deadly malaria. But the great power of gene drives to spread genetic changes throughout a population might make them very hard to control. They might spread beyond field tests or intended targets. Can tamer versions of gene drives, daisy drives, threshold drives, restoration drives, ensure safety? Or are we kidding ourselves? Whatever we do, will life find a way? If we refuse to consider gene drives for any purpose, we'd be turning our back on a powerful way to tackle malaria. If we do want to consider gene drives, communities in Africa will need to answer some important questions. Who should be engaged and how? Who should convene the discussions? And who gets to make the ultimate decision? But it's not just Africa. Similar questions will arise throughout the world, including many places in the U.S., from Martha's Vineyard to Maui. So the question is, what can you do? A lot, it turns out. You don't have to be an expert, and you don't have to do it alone. Invite friends over, virtually or in person when it's safe, for dinner and debate about what we should do, or organize a conversation for a book club or a faith group or a campus event. You can find lots of resources and ideas at our website, bravenewplanet.org. It's time to choose our planet. The future is up to us. Brave New Planet is a co-production of the Broad Institute of MIT and Harvard, Pushkin Industries, and the Boston Globe, with support from the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation. Our show is produced by Rebecca Lee Douglas with Mary Dew. Theme song composed by Ned Porter. Mastering and sound design by James Garver. 
Fact-Checking by Joseph Fridman, Anna Stitt, and Ian Chant. Special thanks to Christine Heenan and Rachel Roberts at Clarendon Communications, to Lee McGuire, Kristen Zarelli, and Justine Levin-Allerhand at The Broad, to Mia Lobel and Heather Fain at Pushkin, and to Eli and Edie Broad, who made The Broad Institute possible. This is Brave New Planet. I'm Eric Lander. Hello, listeners of Brave New Planet. I'm Vas Christodoulou, host of the How To Academy podcast, a bi-weekly show from London's home of big thinking. Join us and hear in-depth from guests including Cristiana Fuigueres on fighting the climate crisis, Yuval Noah Harari on the story of the human race, Richard Dawkins on a life dedicated to science, and many more. That's the How To Academy podcast, the bi-weekly show from London's home of big thinking. <laughs>